فيتبعون أحسنا Amabad, dear committed brothers and dear committed sisters, Yaqulullahu subhana fi kitabihi al-aziz, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu attaqu allaha haqqa tuqatih, wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimoon, wa'atasimu bihablillahi jami'an wa la tafarraqu. واذكروا نعمة الله عليكم إذ كنتم أعداء فألف بين قلوبكم فأصبحتم بنعمته إخوانا وكنتم على شفا حفرة من النار فأنقذكم منها كذلك يبين الله لكم آياته لعلكم تهتدون ولتكن منكم أمة يدعون إلى الخير ويأمرون بالمعروف وينهون عن المنكر وأولئك هم المفلحون. These are ayat from Surah Al Imran around ayah 100. And these ayat, I'm sure you've heard them from. This minbar and from other speakers and other khutabah on different occasions at different times throughout your lifetime. One of the issues that we have, and no one wants to open this chapter in our history in a an objective way. Some of us may refer to it with a deficiency of knowledge. Others of us want to speak about it, but with a personalized tinge. And others of us have the asabiya background when it comes to it. And that is, why is it so difficult for Muslims to come together? to be in a sense solidified and to work along with each other on a common goal with a common purpose holding hands with each other why is this so difficult to be as honest and as transparent about this it's because we have not had a, a heart-to-heart discussion about why are we divided. One of the issues, the major issue I think, that has contributed to this division is that we don't have a consensual leader. We have leaders who are local 
We have leaders who are sectarian. We have leaders who are cultural. We have leaders who are this, that, and the other. But we don't have leaders who can gain the confidence of the majority or the quality Muslims that count. That's the problem. We have this. So let's try to go back and get a grip on the origins of this problem. The origins of this problem date back 14 centuries ago. And it had to do with, okay, the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings and benedictions and mercies be upon him. Passed away. He was the leader. No one has disputed that, at least publicly. Everyone consented to his leadership. Among the Muslims were those at that time who were not totally loyal, but because Islam was the wave of the future, they became, they consented to the Prophet's leadership. The Prophet passes away. Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa Now, who's going to lead the Muslims? There are two concepts that are Islamic concepts. One of those, these are Quranic Islamic concepts. These are not something some mujtahid comes along and says, this is the way you should go. And here is where the, the foundations of our division is located. One of these concepts is the concept of shura. It's a Quranic concept. وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ وَأَمْرُهُمْ شُورًا بَيْنَهُمْ And the question becomes, why didn't the Muslims, after the Prophet passed away, why didn't they have a shura among themselves to determine who is going to be, who is going to fill in for the Prophet now as leader, because the Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu wasalam is gone. Some Muslims say that there should have been a shura right there and then to determine who is going to lead the Muslims. Other Muslims say they may not have written this down, obviously, but this is the way they thought of this matter is if we were going to make, if we we're going to have a shura among the Muslims uh, who were there and then, uh, first of all, you have to realize Islam has spread from beyond Al Medina. The Prophet ﷺ passed away in Al Medina. Islam had spread to all the four corners of the Arabian Peninsula and beyond. How are you? The first question is: How are you going to have a shura? among the 100,000 plus Muslims who are outside of Al-Medina. How are you going to do that? That wasn't possible. It wasn't possible in the sense that we can do this in a limited time. You could do it in the world of that time in months, yes. Or in weeks, maybe. 
But to do it in a matter of a few days to keep the Muslims together, it's not going to be possible. So we can't have, we were not going to be able to have shura. And this issue was not determined by shura during the time of Allah's Prophet. Allah's Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, could have had a shura among the Muslims in his lifetime as to who the next is go- next leader of the Muslims after the Prophet passes away is going to be. He didn't do that. So now we have a burning issue. Who's going to lead the Muslims if we're going to have a shura as to who's the next imam or leader or decision maker or prime executive among the Muslims. But it already happened. Now we have a vacuum and someone has to fill in this vacuum. A shura is not possible. So the other concept that Muslims have is the concept of imama. There's an imam who leads the Muslims. And this imama is also a Quranic and a prophetic concept. It's not something something some mujtahid comes along and says, you know, there's an imam who is appointed who has to lead. The problem here is, and the Prophet made considerable amount of statements concerning the leadership of Imam Ali. Many statements. Anyone, and you can go to any of these references that you have in your home or in your library or in your masjid. You'll find plenty of them. And this is trans madhabi. It's in all the madhahib. It has nothing to do with any particular madhab. But what becomes the issue here? What becomes a difficulty in having an Imam Ali leading the Muslims when the majority of these Muslims were anti-Imam Ali. You're stuck here between one decision, between one Quranic prophetic emphasis on Shura and another emphasis on Imama. This is, this is the gray area that has not been thought through objectively, selflessly, by qualified scholarly Muslim ulama. Hasn't been thought through. We had 14 centuries to do that, but we got caught, we got sucked into our own selfishness and asabiyya. And that's why we have the issues that we have today. So it was, it was thought in that one day, that one day called the day of Saqifa, it was thought in order for us to avoid the munafiqeen taking control of Islamic issues in the highest office, let us quickly appoint someone who can fill in this vacuum. This is what happened in our Islamic history. It wasn't done because someone hates someone. One of these 
individuals who were around the prophet hates another individual who was around the prophet. That wasn't the case. They weren't looking at themselves as individuals. They were looking at the Muslims in their makeup. Some of them were tulaqa. Some of them were munafiqun. Some of them were mu'allafa qulubuhum. And then others were badriyun. Others were ridwaniyun. Others were muhajirun. Others were ansar. When you take a look at the the numbers here, the shallow Muslims by far outnumber the deeply principled, committed Muslims. Something had to be done. And so that was what was done in our history. It wasn't done because someone is taking away from the validity of someone else or someone is trying to steal an Islamic position or this type of thing that still is embedded deep down in the cultures and the traditions of whoever Muslims. Let me say and skip this, the first 40 years after the Prophet, the leadership of the Muslims in those first 40 years. And we, we should come, all Muslims should come together and agree that after those first 40 years, something terribly happened. And that is, now we have enemies of Allah and His Prophet. We have those who had bad intentions and did not have the principle of Islam and the interest of the Muslims in their heart and in their mind. And that is what may be called and should be called the Umawi coup d'etat in Islamic history. This is where the serious issues of division set in. Now, there was an opposition to this Umawi grab of power. And that opposition basically came from those who are referred to in history as Shiites. And in this context of Shiite opposition to the Umawis, we had, and we still have, two major components of Shiism. One of them is Al-Ja'fariya, Al-Ithna'ashariya, the Ja'fari Twelvers, and the other one is Al-Zaydiya. Both of these, they emphasize the concept of Islamic leadership. Al-Imama. In opposition to the kings now who were ruling among the Muslims, King Muawiyah and King Yazid and all of these. See, our immaturity still refers to these kings as Khulafa. That is Islamic historical ignorance and immaturity. And this concept of al-imamah says the leader of Muslims has to be from the offspring of Fatima al-Zahra, the Prophet's daughter. Okay, up until now, I think even those who have been disconnected historically from these sensitive issues, i.e. 
the Sunnis, up until now this is fine. But among the Shi'is themselves, if we can because besides the Ithna'ashari's and the Zaydis, the Twelvers and the Zaydis, there are also other Shi'is. Actually, there's plenty of other Shi'is, but many of them, because of the lapse of centuries, have ceased to exist, basically. There are others who are Ismailis or Seveners. There's seven Imams. Zaydis, there's Imams, the, the first common ones are Al-Imam Ali, Al-Imam Al-Hasan, Al-Imam Al-Husayn, Al-Imam Zayn Al-Abideen, and Al-Imam Zayd, the brother of Al-Imam Muhammad Al-Baqir. The, the Zaydis emphasize the Imama of these. But from here on, there's a difference of opinion between the Twelvers and the Zaydis. And that difference of opinion has, as far as the Zaydis are concerned, they don't discriminate between the descendants of an Imam al-Hasan and the descendants of an Imam al-Husayn. Their criteria for leadership is not wasiya. The Jafari Shi'is they say the criteria for the leadership is a wasiya from a previous imam to a following imam. From a father to a particular son. That is a condition for the leadership of the Muslims. The Zaydis say no, that is not the conditionship for the leader of the Muslims. The condition, uh, the condition for the leadership of the Muslims is not a statement by a father, but a jihad and a sacrifice by the son. The proof of leadership is in sacrifice and in standing up to injustice, not by word and not by passivity, but by actual, if it, if it has to be, by actual shahada and martyrdom. This is the ma major difference between these two. And, and the two brothers, Al-Baqir and Zaid, they had a discussion about this. And Al-Baqir tells Zaid, if you are correct, then our own father is not an Imam because he was not involved in what you are saying that you have to be actively opposed to a Zalim to an oppressor and you see both of these the validity of both sides but our short comings towards ourselves is both of them are right it's just like when you breathe sometimes you take in your breath and sometimes you inhale and then you exhale and that's the lifeline of the Islamic leadership at sometimes 
it is justified if it is not taking on the oppressors by revolution, but that cannot continue. At other times when the Muslims can gain a little power, then it becomes their duty to take on the oppressor. In the Zaidi school of thought, what determines this? What determines if we have enough potential to take on the illegitimate ruler? They said, what determines this is the battle of Badr. When the Muslims had 300 plus warriors that were willing to give up their lives for Allah, this is the bare minimum. If you have that much, then it is your duty to stand up against those who stole the governorship of Muslims. Now, we come to the Sunnis in this little history here. Obviously, in the khutbah, we can't cover all of these in detail. But in this history here, we find Abu Hanifa, who lived in both the, the end of the Umawi regime at the, and at the beginning of the Abbasi regime. He lived in both eras. And he was supportive of an Imam Zaid against the Umawi, Hisham ibn Abdul Malik, the king. And he was supportive of Al Imam al Nafs al Zakiya against the Abbasi ruler. And the question is why didn't he himself, just like Al Imam Zaid, Al Imam al Nafs al why didn't he himself go and fight? He answered that. They came to him. Some of his followers, okay, you support them, you are giving them some of the resources that are coming to you he was financing some of them behind the scenes obviously so why didn't you do it? he said the only reason i did not go is people had entrusted me with their wada'ah they had either money or belongings or assets or whatever that they put in his possession and he, could, he said, I couldn't get rid of these to join. And when someone is reviewing this history, and of course, numbers are not important. You know this, from 37, almost 37 years out here, we don't consider numbers. We don't consider quantities. We consider quality. But if, and no one has ever counted how many Muslims, there's 2 billion Muslims, brothers and sisters in this world, 2 billion. How many of them are Hanafis? Has any, does anyone have any idea? How many of them are Ja'faris? Anyone have any idea? How many are Shafi'is? All of this. A simple count of Muslims in their madhabs, no one knows. This is how ignorant, in a very simple, this is not a philosophical or ideological issue, just an issue of counting. In a very simple issue of counting, we are ignorant of our own selves. So, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, which if I were to guess, is just a guess, Allahu A'lam, his madhab is the prevalent madhab among the Muslims of the world. If we were 
to take his words, he equated the revolt or the revolution of Imam Zaid against the Umawi king to the battle of Badr, the prophet against the mushriks of Mecca. You want something as more clear than that? Why, why don't these statements, why don't they flow in our brains the, the same way blood flows in our bodies? Something is wrong here, we have to say. So the Zaydis, they don't discriminate between the Sharifs, the descendants of an Imam al Hassan, and the Sada, the descendants, the Sayyids, the descendants of an Imam al Hussein. No discrimination there. So some of our brothers. They hold the opinion that confronting illegitimate rulers, confronting them, not, you know, uh, opposing them, they oppose them. They don't feel comfortable with them. They are against them in theory. But the actual opposition is suspended until the appearance or reappearance of an Imam al-Mahdi alayhi salam. At that time, yes, we will participate in active revolutionary opposition to illegitimate rulers. It's where we are. This is the real world, brothers and sisters. But does that make sense? If you have a Quranic heart, if you have a Quranic risala, if you have a Quranic mind, how do you justify your for yourself? I'm speaking to you as a Muslim first. Forget about the madhahib for the moment. How do you justify for yourself the absence of opposition to those? And you see, you look around you, all of these rulers in the world, how they behave. What are they doing? to innocent populations in the hundreds of millions. And you would say, oh, we feel sorry, can't do anything. Not even civil disobedience. You will not find a justification for civil disobedience. Huh? Civil disobedience among these types of Muslims. No. And when a revolutionary imam, a Zaidi imam, from a Jafari background reinserts the spirit of the Quran and the character of the Prophet into his Islamic strategy. They live with that for some time. They can take it for some time. But it's beginning to show that it's wearing off. And now you know, during Imam al-Khumaini's time, there was the conferences about Hajj. Those are gone. It's almost becoming history. Now they want to have conference, and they don't even have conferences. They want to have demonstrations about Imam al-Husayn. We're not against demonstrations, and we're not against Imam al-Husayn. Astaghfirullah. What we are saying is that there's been a deterioration that has set in. 
And this deterioration has to be checked. They need a cultural revolution. Our brothers and sisters who gave sacrifices for an Islamic step forward in our time and in our generation, because they're beginning to slip, they need to be corrected. They need to be shown what they are doing to themselves. Because if this continues like it's been going on, we will, we will in our, or at least our children, will say to themselves, once upon a time, we had an Islamic revolution. Another issue is the issue of Isma. The Imams do not make mistakes. In other words, they're infallible. Immaculate, infallible Imams. This is held by the Shi'i Ithna Asharis. The Shi'i Zaydis don't believe in this type of infallibility. There are other things that can be said here. I, I just want to skip them. One of those issues has to do with the late Ali Shariati who also has become something like a psychological complex that they don't want to deal with. What's wrong with you? A person contributed to the best of his knowledge within the context of his time to the progress of Muslim thought, Muslim strategy. And I was, honestly, I was taken aback when I heard. I didn't know this until recently. And this comes from a Shi'i scholar. I'm relating to you what I heard from, I didn't hear it from some Wahhabi or some crazy guy out there. When Shariati was assassinated by the minions of the Shah in England, Some people wanted to have his body returned to Iran to be buried in Iran at that time. This is pre-Islamic revolution, 1977, on the Gregorian calendar. Who opposed the burial of Ali Shariati in Iran? It was the clerical establishment in Iran at that time. Shame on that type of establishment. Shame on that type of establishment. And they still have not overcome this. You don't see Ali Shariati's books circulating. You don't even see Mutahari's books circulating. Something is wrong and something has to be done. Now we come to the pathetic, and I mean pathetic state of affairs of the Wahhabi Salafi type of so-called Sunnis. When we have some of them trying to legitimize oppressors, illegitimate rulers, by saying you obey them even if they lash your back, and even if they expropriate your possessions 
And in some of these, they call these a hadith. The word in hataku irdak. Even if they violate your own womanhood, we, we're supposed to. We're and I'm gonna in the second khutbah, I will come to some words that they say, and I will quote them. But this is the pathetic state of affairs that we are in. No one wants to mention these in khutbahs. Oh, don't say that in a khutbah. No, no, no. The Prophet of Allah said, أَلَا إِنَّ الْقُرْآنَ وَالسُّلْطَانَ سَيَفْتَرِقَانَ There will come a time when the Qur'an will go one way and governance will go another way. أَلَا فَدُورُ مَعَ الْقُرْآنِ حَيْثُ دَارُ Pay attention. Go with the Qur'an wherever it goes. Cycle with the Qur'an however it cycles. أَلَا سَيَكُونُ عَلَيْكُمْ أُمَرًا Pay attention. There will be, you will have those types of rulers that if you obey them, they will mislead you. And if you disobey them, they will kill you. And then they ask, so what do we do when this is the case? And the Prophet of Allah said, you will do as the disciples of Jesus did. They were, the, the long and short of the hadith, they were persecuted. They were tortured. They were assassinated. And none of that would force them to relinquish their commitment to Allah. Brothers and sisters, we have heard recently those who are proud of the numbers that have gone to Karbala in the previous year or years, and this year, and probably in the coming year, Allahu A'lam. When have you been proud of numbers? You, you the people who are saying this, you always said before, numbers don't count. And now numbers count? You can't listen to yourself? Some of these, some years ago, a Canadian newspaper had a picture of a baby in the hands of the father. And that baby was slashed and Blood was running from the head and the face of that baby. And the father is saying, this is a gift for Haidar. And the Canadian newspaper commented on that, this is what Islam says. It's time to take a look at your internal selves. Is this what Islam says? This is Imam al-Husayn's spirit, his strategy.
we are beginning to see the merchants of tears. Some of those belonging to the clerical class are beginning to appear like they are merchants of tears. They make money to have people lament and cry for the tragedies of history. So when you read or listen to these ayat and you look at the real world, check yourself before the day of accountability when the inevitable check is due. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم أدعوه سبحانه وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed brothers and dear committed sisters we did not in the past 40 odd years we did not withhold one word one sentence one khutbah of criticism and critique of the Saudi Wahhabi malignancy in our Muslim body in the world never and if that malignancy is going to appear in a Shia context we will not withhold one word one sentence or one khutbah to try to expose them like we exposed those in the Saudi realm let it be known and this is not going to take away this this realization that in the Shi'i context there are the Wahhabi types. This realization is not going to deter us. It's not going to deflect us from concentrating on the evil in the Arabian Peninsula. The evil that is supported by Zionism and imperialism. We're not going to take our sight off of that. Don't think that's going to happen for one moment. As I mentioned in the last khutbah last week, the Saudi regime said that they are going to pass a sentence against some of their scholars this past week. First and foremost among them is Salman al-Awda. Well, that has been delayed. This is, I don't know, the fourth, third, fourth time that they've been delaying this. But now it's been delayed until, the, they tell us, until the 27th of November. 
One of their previous ambassadors here in Washington, D.C., who used to be the head of their intelligence service services for around 20 years, maybe a little more, said that the United States should come down from its high moral horses. He said this when he was in Washington last week. I didn't know he was here this past week, but he was here and he was talking to these officials. Come down from your high moral, what do they want? The United States to act like Saudi Arabia? Not that it doesn't act like Saudi Arabia, but it's not as cruel or it's not as obvious and flagrant as the Saudis. They want the, the United States to commit another Khashoggi. What is he telling the, the U.S. officials? These are his bosses. What is he telling his bosses? Oh yeah, we got rid of Khashoggi and we could not cover up the crime scene, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that you are more moral than we are. Of course, he put it in the diplomatic phraseology. In other words, we're in, all, we're in this together. Who do you think you are? But he couldn't say it like that. Then we have in this, just yesterday and a few days before that, we had that desert, Dav Davos in the desert, in which the capitalists of the world come to Arabia, to Riyadh, and then figure out how to make money. In other words, figure out how to steal the resources, the natural resources, the labor resources of peoples around the world. And they concentrate on those who have the petroleum. There's more to steal there. And then this past week, there was a telephone call between Trump and MBS. And they spoke about eliminating this Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is one of them. He's educated by the Saudi Wahhabi nexus and he was indirectly promoted and brought out to be flashed to the whole world as a Khalifa. Uh, see, this is the, uh, the absence of knowledge of who we are makes a person like that a Khalifa. A Khalifa? What are you talking about? And then there's these news items right now. There's some type of, we don't know if they're true or not. Allahu A'lam. But it's out there in the public. There's some type of relationship between MBS and this, what's her name? Lindsay Lohan or whatever her name is. He gives her uh, a credit card that is wrapped in gold or something like that. And they meet on different occasions. And one news item says that his private plane she is using and all of this. These are Muslim rulers, leaders. Our ignorance, brothers and sisters, is contributing to all of this. And these types of masajid, they keep the people ignorant. So this goes on for how long? And then they have this type of Right now, they're thinking about a common visa 
between the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, which means if a person obtains a visa to go to the United Arab Emirates, he can also go to Saudi Arabia. It's a common visa. And they say this is another avenue of bringing in more people for the purposes of tourism into the land of the Prophet. They want tourists. They don't want Hujjaj. They don't want Mu'tamireen. They don't want you and me who want to go to Mecca and the Medina and other places besides Mecca and Medina. We want to also go to Khaybar. We want to go to Al-Ta'if. We want to go to these places the Prophet went to. Oh no, those are, oh, you can't think about that. Only thing you're allowed to think about, you go to Mecca and Medina, that's all. And you're lucky if you can get two or three weeks in Mecca and Medina. And we have this Saudi Da'iya. They call him a Da'iya, a superb missionary. That's what Da'iya means, a super missionary. He says his name is, I want to tell you his name, I won't go through all of this because I don't want people to come and say, oh, he's leaving, he's leaving gaps in his present, in his khutbah. No. His name is Abdul Aziz al-Rayyis. And previously he gave khutbahs in a masjid in the Prophet's city, al-Madina al-Munawwara. And in those previous khutbas he said it is not allowable for anyone, for any Muslim to object to his or her ruler, even if that ruler commits adultery, even if he drinks intoxicants, liquor. He said all of this previously in his khutbas in a masjid in al-Medina. No, no shame, no honor, no values, no principle. Recently, in this past week, in a television interview, he says, you have to obey your ruler. And I'm going to quote him here. I'm going to say it in Arabic. That's how he stated it. Then I'm going to translate that into English. لو كان الحاكم يزني كل يوم بموميس في خيمة فعليك اتباعه حتى ولو كان يلوط أيضا. That means you have to obey your ruler. Even if he is fornicating every day with a prostitute in a tent, you still have to obey him. Even if he is having a homosexual affair. That's his words. These are ulama. These are Islamic scholars. Who's listening to them? These, these are the type of scholars who make it possible. Just today, 83 Palestinians were injured near Gaza. 14 of them in critical condition, or 14 of them were shot by live ammunition. And who, who cares? Right? With these types of ulama, with these types of masajid and khutbah, who cares? 
They can get away. The Israelis can get away with all of this. Then we have elections, I guess, coming up in Egypt. And one of these Saudi extensions into Egypt is called the Hizb al-Nur, the Nur Party. And what do they have? What are they? These are the these are the types of people who are leading us into the abyss. One of their leaders, first name is Yasser. Anyone familiar with Egypt and those parties would know who I'm who I'm referring to. He says, "Look at this. Look where we are. We are barely living, barely surviving. And look what he's saying. He says." It is permissible for a husband to have sex with his wife during her menstrual menstrual period provided there is no fungus infection in her vagina. Ya Allah, where, what world are you in? Besides taking issue with this type of statement, are we living in a world that you're, you know, these are sort of campaign issues right now? Another opinion from this husband Noor and maybe from the same person, he says it is permissible for a husband if his wife is assaulted not to defend her if that means it's going to preserve his life. We, as Muslims, if we understand Allah and His Prophet correctly, we defend women, even if they are not our women. We defend them at the expense of our own lives. Their lives come before us. Well, he's turned this all the way around. And you, you think we're, it's, we're at the end of it? No, there's still more. He says, it is permissible for Muslim men to marry underaged Muslim girls, meaning those who are nine years old, if the physical, if the physique of that girl can tolerate a marriage. Listen to that. Oh Allah, we have no one to complain to you to except you. When we are privy to these types of things that are happening in front of our own eyes. Then we have in Jordan, fourth grade students, fourth grade girl students, who got rid of their science book because the science book says in it that there's cross-pollination among plants. The science book is teaching a scientific issue and because to them it seemed like a sexual issue, they got rid of the books. You tell me, this disease is not deep down inside of us. And where does this disease come from? Isn't it about time we begin to open our eyes and realize what's happening? Then we have, failed to mention this last week, but the, the news was out the week before last, 
that Malaysia is determined to open a, an embassy for the Palestinians and place that embassy in Amman, Jordan. They can't place it under Israeli rule within an Israeli colony called Israel. They, they, want, they won't do it there. So there's some decency in that gesture. And that is followed just this past week by Kuwait deciding to appoint an ambassador to represent Kuwait but once again it cannot do that inside the colonized lands of Palestine so that ambassador is going to be stationed in Amman Jordan these are the types of issues that uh, you know, why should anyone mention these? Why should anyone speak about these? Yes, yeah, stay. Yes, yeah, sleep. Continue in your slumber. A synagogue has been opened in Dubai. The news came out by Associated Press. Now, Yehud have a synagogue in Dubai. We don't have any problems with Yehud having synagogues anywhere they want to have them. But what type of Yehud? Are they going to be? Is this a synagogue for the Zionists? We would have loved to have this synagogue run by Naturi Karta. Authentic Yahud. But that's not the case. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'ah. Wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ajtinaabah. Wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna. Waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama. ربنا اغفر لنا ذنوبنا وإسرافنا في أمرنا وثبت أقدامنا وانصرنا على القوم الكافرين ربنا أفرغ علينا صبرا وثبت أقدامنا وانصرنا على القوم الكافرين ربنا أفرغ علينا صبرا وتوفنا مسلمين ربنا لا تجعل في قلوبنا غلا للذين آمنوا ربنا إنك رؤوف رحيم ربنا وسعت كل شيء رحمة وعلما فاغفر للذين تابوا واتبعوا سبيلك وقهم عذاب الجحيم ربنا وأدخلهم جنات عدن التي وعدتهم ومن صلح من آبائهم وأزواجهم وذرياتهم إنك أنت العزيز الحكيم ربنا افتح بيننا وبين قومنا بالحق وأنت خير الفاتحين ربنا صل على محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر 
ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعما يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر شهدنا يا 